0: So one of me and John's favorite date night spots has been Salt Creek Grill in Dana Point. Have you guys been to Salt Creek Grill before? Maybe. It's pretty good. John's clapping for it because he's been there many, many times. And we honestly kind of order the exact same thing every time that we go. We always get their steak plates. It's basically tri-tip, and it comes with these garlic parmesan fries. It's very fancy and so good. Every single time, we can't help but order it because it is quite yummy. But after COVID, the restaurant, you know, kind of closed down for a little bit and changed up their menu. And so sadly, they don't have the steak plate anymore. I know, it's terrible. And we were heartbroken when we showed up one night for our date night, and there was no steak plate. And it being a delicious restaurant, we thought, okay, They got to have something else yummy, I would assume, because it's a good restaurant. We enjoy it. And so I found on the menu their French dip sandwich. And so I thought, hey, why not give it a go? It looks pretty good. So we ordered it, got the French dip sandwich, and it was, of course, delicious. So flavorful. It comes with that little aju fancy sauce that you dip your sandwich into, if you know what I'm talking about. And it was so yummy. Super, super good. And so we went home from the date night, you know, got ready for bed, went to bed, and that was it. But suddenly, in the middle of the night, I woke up wide awake, and out of nowhere, I quickly realized that I think I got food poisoning. And I don't know if you guys have gotten it before, but it is not fun, let me tell you. So for the next hour, as you could imagine, it was not very pretty. Not enjoying it, <laughs> it was pretty terrible, um, and by the next morning, we were... Like, what in the world happened? Was it that sandwich? This is just super weird. But whatever, just carried on. I felt better, so that was good. A few months went by, and we went to a similar restaurant. And it was one of those restaurants that has some, like, too fancy of foods on the menu. I'm like, what is this ingredient? Like, I don't know <laughs> what that is. So I went with the safe bet, and I saw they had a French dip sandwich. And I will say, when I was looking at the menu, I did think to myself, ah. I had that sandwich that one time and I it didn't feel super good afterwards but maybe it was just a weird, you know, day. Maybe something happened in the kitchen, I don't know. So I'll just go for it and eat the sandwich. And I ordered it, the food came and once again, it was a delicious sandwich. Nearly drank that sauce that it came with. So good. We went home, went to bed, and what do you think happened? <laughs> sad but same thing I woke up in the middle of the night totally sick and I will (laughs) leave the rest to you but just totally sick from that French dip sandwich and really I should have known I, I should have just avoided it I mean I got sick that one time it was not fun I might as well have just avoided it but I thought to myself Ah, it's no big deal you know I'll just I'll give it a shot and we'll see where it goes And maybe there are certain foods for you guys that do similar things, that you know if you have that ice cream, your stomach's going to be hurting, or you know you eat that one food and you're not going to be feeling so well. But you trick yourself into thinking, it's just one bite, it's just one time, maybe it won't be so bad after all. And for food, that's one thing, right? We We can eat certain things that might make you feel sick for a little bit, not so serious. But the Bible warns us of a dangerous desire that can do far more damage than food ever could. It warns us of this dangerous desire that wants to pull you into its trap, that wants to pull you into thinking that it's just one time, it's no big deal, don't worry about it. And that trap is the trap of the world. And John the Apostle in our text tonight wants to help warn us to stay away from these dangerous desires of the world, to avoid them altogether. And so we're going to go ahead and look at our text in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. And this book is written by John the Apostle, who um, wrote it for the purpose of people being able to read it and understand where they're at with God. Are they really Christians or are they not Christians? And so the whole book has a series of different tests. There's the test of light and darkness that teaches, are you in the light or are you in the dark? There's the test of love and hate. Are you a person that loves other people or are you a person that hates other people? That can help you understand where you're at with God. And then it leads to our test, which is the test of the world. This will help determine whether or not we're really right with God. So let's go ahead and look at verse 15 and see what John says. So in 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so this text text is saying that we as Christians should not love the world. And if a Christian loves the world, if a Christian is desiring after the world and that's the things that they're attracted to, chasing after constantly, it really proves that God's love isn't really in them in the first place, that they're not really saved, that they're not really right with God. And a big question that a lot of people have looking at this text is, what does John mean by the word world? What does he mean? Because that, I mean, dictates a lot. (laughs) <laughs> right, of this text. If we're not supposed to love something, okay, we want to know what we're not supposed to love. And so there's three different ways that the Bible uses this word world. And I'll give you those three definitions. First, the Bible talks about world in the sense of cosmos. That's the earth. That's the planet, the place that God made. You might think of Genesis 1.1. And how it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that word earth is really cosmos, world. It's the same idea. And so is John trying to say that we're not supposed to love the earth? That we're supposed to hate the sunsets and, you know, hate the beach. It's just terrible. Don't love the world. No, that's not the point. Of course not. And so we know that's not what he's talking about when he says world. Another definition that the Bible gives us, another use of this word world in the Bible is referring to people. Referring to people. So everybody who lives on the planet, everybody who exists on the planet. You might think of John 3:16 and how it says for God so loved the world. And what does he mean by world? He's saying that God so loved people in this way that he sent Jesus. So is John saying that we're not supposed to love people, that we should hate people in the world? Well, of course we know. No, that's not the point. That's not what John is trying to say. And so it leads us to our last use of this word world, and that is the world system. The world system is what he means by world. And this is the system that is run on by the world. It's the system that's opposed to God. It's opposed to the things of the Bible. It's what sinful people, what they seek after, what they, what they want um, in their deepest desires. It's the practices, the teachings, the ideas, the behaviors, the attitudes that come from the world and all of these that are opposed to God, that mock the things of God, that do not like the things of God. A word we might use to describe world is worldliness. You guys have probably used the word worldliness before. And when you think of a worldly person or a worldly environment, what do you think of? Well, you think of things that are opposed to God, right? That, that they don't celebrate doing what's righteous, doing what's good. But instead, they celebrate what's doing sinful, what's, what's wrong, what's in opposition to God. And one theologian put it this way. He said that worldliness is what our culture does to make sin either seem less sinful or not sinful at all. Worldliness is what our culture does to make righteousness look odd, strange, or even quirky. And so the point is worldliness basically gives a big thumbs down to God. It's in complete opposition to God. If you're going to be a person who loves God, the world is going to mock you for that. They're going to say, what are you doing? Why are you living this way? Just have fun. And on the other hand, when you do the right thing, they're going to make fun of you for that too. Why not just do the wrong thing? Why not just sin? They celebrate sin. Clearly, they are in opposition to God. And John is saying in this text, don't love this. Don't love this world that's totally in opposition to God. And in the verses following, he explains why a Christian should not love the world. Why should a Christian not love the world? He he gives us a series of reasons why. And first, it's because of who we are as Christians. We can't love the world because as Christians, we're Christ followers. And as we've already said, the world is in complete opposition to the things of God. And so we can't love the world. Next, he tells us, That another reason why we can't love the world is because the things that the world does, the behaviors, the attitudes, the things that they preach, the message that they preach and want you to practice is not going to be glorifying to God. It's going to totally be the opposite of what God wants you to do. And then lastly, the last reason we can't love the world is because where the world is going. Where the world is going in the end. And he says that in verse 17 that this world is going to pass away. This place is not eternal. It won't last forever. And so we can't love it. It's pretty amazing that this section, this passage, was written almost 2,000 years ago. And it's so applicable to us today. It is so relatable. And so as we dive into this section, we need to examine ourselves, our own hearts, and think, do I love God or do I love the world? Ultimately, that's the, that's the point of this message. That's the, the takeaway from this sermon. Do I love God or do I love the world? Because our desires reveal a whole lot about our hearts. What you want, what your cravings are, what you want more than anything in this life. And so for point number one, write it down this way. Realize that your desires reveal what you love most. Realize your desires reveal what you love most. If you love something, you're going to be committed to it. You're going to be focused on it. It's going to, a lot of your time or attention, money, resources, it's going to go towards it because you love this thing. You're devoted to this thing. And I have very quickly learned this with having a daughter, having a baby. You guys know Eden, right? Little Miss Eden, she is pretty cute, I have to admit, but she takes up a lot of time. She does take up a whole lot of time and a whole lot of resources. Just a few months ago, she got her first sickness, and it was pretty bad. Poor thing. She had like a cold or something like that. It was actually during a train retreat. Um, if any of you were there, you might remember she was not feeling the greatest. Um, and it took up a lot of time that week that she was sick. I mean, I was on the phone with her doctor making sure like this isn't anything crazy or normal or weird. Obviously I'm like a total first time mom, like freaking out on (laughs) the phone, making sure, "Is, is my child okay? Um, I was taking her temperature on and off throughout the day, making sure that it, the, you know, the fever wasn't getting too high or anything like that. I was going to the store to get the Tylenol. I just wanted to make sure that she was as comfortable as she possibly could be. And it's funny looking back because if I get sick, if I go down with some cold or sickness, it's like, uh, suck it up, <laughs> right? Like, I'll just take a longer nap or I might take a, a you know, day cool to f- to feel a little bit better, but whatever. Like, I'll, it'll, I'll get over it. But these babies, you guys, they're so fragile. They're so fragile. And so, of course, me as a mom, I want to make sure that she is as comfortable as possible, that the sickness doesn't get as worse as it or as bad as it possibly could. And so I took precautions. And if you looked at my schedule, there was a whole lot of Eden on it. (laughs) There was a ton of Eden. She took up a lot of my time. And why? Well, because she's my daughter. I love her, and I'm devoted to her. I want to make sure that she has everything that she needs. I'm committed to her. And John is saying the same thing in this text, that if you love the world, your time, your resources are going to go towards the world. It's going to, because you love it, because you're committed to it, you're devoted to it. And same with if you love God. It's going to show in what you do. It's going to show in where your time goes, where your resources go, who you really love. If your desires are for the world, it's going to show in what you put on your calendar. What do you spend time on? What are you occupying your time with? Is it things that are pleasing to God or pleasing to yourself? Well, if you love the world, it's going to be pleasing to yourself. That's where your time is going to go. It's also going to show in what you put in front of your face, the entertainment, the things that you entertain yourselves with. Is it memorizing some scripture or is it watching videos you know you shouldn't be watching or inappropriate things that you know are not supposed to be laughed at as a Christian, as somebody who claims to follow Christ. It's also going to show in what you talk about, your conversations with people. If you love the world, it's going to show up in what you spend time, you know, having conversations about. Is it primarily about you? Is it primarily about what you want or selfish things? Or is it about God? Is it about things that would glorify God? And lastly, your desires are going to show in who you really are. Ultimately, it's going to show in who you are as a person, what your deepest desires are. It's the heart of who we are, our desires, and those things go hand in hand. In Matthew 6, verse 21, Matthew 6, 21, this is Jesus speaking. It's the section where he talks about not laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. And he goes on in verse 21, he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we know our desires and our heart, they go hand in hand. It really shows who you are as a person, what you want, what you crave, what you desire. That's the, that's the key to who you are. And it's really interesting how John words it in verse 15. How he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. He's not saying, hey guys, you probably haven't thought about this, just a warning, but don't love the world. It's like John is already assuming that the Christians are struggling with this, that they're already guilty of loving the world in some sort of capacity, in some sort of way. It's more like he's saying, I know the world is tempting, but don't love it. Don't love the world. I know it looks good, but stay away from it. He recognized that there were Christians in the church that were getting comfortable with the world, that were getting too cozy with those people that they shouldn't be hanging out with. He recognized this. At first, these Christians would have never been caught hanging out with that group of friends. They would have never associated with that company. But then they started to realize they're actually pretty nice. They're actually not so bad after all. And so it wasn't that big of a deal after all. Next thing you know, they're hanging out with this company. At first, they used to hate hearing those words, hate hearing those bad words or that gossip or that slander. But now they find themselves doing it. They find themselves listening to it and not saying anything about it. They're getting comfortable with the world. And it's very similar to the progression that we see in Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, The psalmist writes, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so this progression is a person who's just getting more and more comfortable, more and more cozy with that bad environment, with those bad people. They're falling in love with the world. They're being deceived. And it starts with just a little bit of walking. They're walking alongside each other. But next thing you know, he's standing. He's taking more time to talk about those things with that person, to enjoy that company with that person. And the next thing you know, he's sitting. He's in the most comfortable position you could be in, having a conversation, sitting, enjoying, not in a rush to get out of there. He's he's just he's, he's in that spot that he knows he should not be in, that bad company. And John wants to know, wants the Christians to know you can't be comfortable with this world. You can't be comfortable with this world because this world is totally opposed to God. The two just don't go hand in hand. They're totally preaching a different message, a message that opposes the gospel, that opposes living for God, that opposes doing the things that please God. The world wants you to think, do whatever makes you happy. Just have fun. Just enjoy it. Do whatever you want to do because, you know, YOLO, you're going to die one day. And so just live it up, right? But we as Christians know we can't just do whatever makes us happy. We can't just do whatever we want to do. Our hearts can't lead us. Our hearts, our desires cannot lead us into places because it will lead us into places we shouldn't go in the first place. We can't let our hearts lead us. The world also says that we need to just accept everyone. Accept everyone as who they are, what they believe. Don't judge them. Just, just let it be. Let them live however they want to live. Let them believe whatever they want to believe. But of course, as Christians, we can't because Jesus in John 14, 6 says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the the Father except through me. And so we can't just let people live however they want to live. We can't just let people believe in a false gospel, believe that they can be a good person and get to heaven, or they can go to church and get to heaven. We have to teach the truth. We have to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And so Christians, we can't say the same thing, that we love God and that we love the world. The two just don't go together. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. And in James 4.4, he writes a similar thing. He says in James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so James is saying, guys, stop trying to play two sides. You can't. You're either on one team or you're on the other team. It can't be both. You can't love the world and love God. It's got to be one or the other. As you guys know, there was an engagement that happened recently, not too long ago. If you were here last week, you heard the story of Nathan and Becca getting engaged. And it's super exciting. I love hearing the proposal, you know, stories. And maybe you guys have seen those videos that go viral of, you know, the surprise proposal. A lot of the times it's the soldier that comes home from deployment and the girlfriend wasn't expecting it and there he is and he showed up and so excited and he gets on one knee and asks her to marry her and of course she's like, yeah, I'm so excited. And it's super cute, right? Watching these videos, I sometimes cry. I'm so lame. (laughs) But they're so cute, right? Seeing those proposal videos. Maybe you've seen them before too. Well, I want you to imagine that you're watching one of these Proposal videos. And the guy is all nervous and he's, you know, getting ready for the proposal. Um, He's on the beach. It's nighttime. He's got the candles all lit, the rose petals everywhere. He's just waiting for the girl to show up. And she shows up. She's totally surprised. She sees him and, you know, they're all giddy and excited. And he says to her, Of course, I love you and I gotta ask you a question. Will you marry me? Will you marry me? And she's totally like, Ah. Oh, I love you. Hands over the face, you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, of course she says, yes, yes, I will marry you. And she's super excited. She even keeps talking. She says, you know, I, I want to I love you for the rest of my life. We can travel the world together. Maybe one day we can have kids together. I want to love you for the rest of my life. But there's one thing you got to know. There's one thing that you got to keep in mind. And that's that I love another man. And so if I'm going to marry you, you have to let me love this other man. If you're watching this video, you're like, dude, get out of there. Like, you are not marrying that girl because she's crazy. If she thinks that she can play this game of I like this guy and I'm going to keep dating him and marry this guy, it's like you don't even know how love works. Come on. That's not, you you have to pick one or the other, right? Because that's cheating. Ultimately, that's being unfaithful. A marriage bond is between one person and another, one girl and another, (laughs) and a guy. (laughs) How many people, you guys? (laughs) Two people. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) You can't cheat. You can't be unfaithful. The, The marriage bond is between two people and two people only. And John is saying the exact same thing here in our text. He's saying that, If you want to love God, you can't love the world. You can't have both because they're going to be opposed to each other, just like a marriage bond is between two people and two people only. It would be cheating if you did anything otherwise. And same goes with our relationship with God. It's reserved just for God. We can't allow these other idols. We can't allow these other lovers, so to speak, into that relationship because it's secured for us and God only. We can't cheat on God. It's impossible to love the world and to love God at the same time. It has to be one or the other. And next, John lists three specific ways that we can do this, that we can love the world. How does this play itself out? That comes in verse 16. So you can go ahead and look at verse 16 with me. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so he's showing these three specific ways, right, that we can love the world. And the reality is that we are all at risk for loving the world. We are all at risk for falling in love with the world. And so we have to be able to clearly identify the ways that we fall for this trap, the ways that we're tempted to love the world. And so write it down for your second point. Identify your desires for the world. Identify your desires for the world. There are many ways, three ways, <laughs> specifically, that we can fall for this trap, that we can fall for the trap of the world. And so John wants to give us those three ways so we can be guarded, so we can avoid these things, so we can look out for them. The verse is the desires of the flesh. You see that in verse 16. The desires of the flesh. And these desires are anything that come from within us. It's, it's, your, it's your inner craving. It's to be hot after something that you want It's anything that feels good, anything that's sinfully what's going to make you feel better. Or it's something that feels good and you're willing to sin in order to get it. Um, One way that this could play out is your desire for food. It could even be in something simple like food. Maybe you're a person that has no self-control when it comes to eating. And you just eat whatever you want, whenever you want, at any time, at any point, and you have no self-control. Well, the Bible says that we have to have self-control because our desires don't rule us. We rule our desires. We have to rule our desires. We have to have self-control. Another way that this could play out is sexual desires. That's kind of the primary part of this desires of the flesh. And so this could be something like you're craving to have something that is reserved for marriage and marriage only, that it's something that you want or something that you're tempted to get. And it's not time for that right now. You have to reserve that for the right context in the right context as God designed it to be. And the Bible tells us that we have to fight these desires, that we can't just allow our desires to rule us as we previously said, but we rule our desires. We say no to our sin and yes to what God wants us to do instead. And in first Corinthians chapter six, Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20. He says to flee from sexual immorality. He says, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body." Paul is saying that you have to fight these desires. It's interesting how he uses the word flee at the beginning of this text. It's like, run away, get out of there. You don't want to fall into this trap. And maybe this isn't something that relates to you right now. But in the future, this is something you have to guard against. We have to guard against these desires and say, no, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to fight and flee as he has called me to do. And John talks about the next set of desires as well in verse 16. He talks about the desires of the eyes. The desires of the eyes is that next section of desires. And these are the desires that, of course, come from our eyes, come from what we see. It's anything that you see that's sinful and you just want it. You just crave it. You see it, you want it, and you're willing to sin in order to get it. It's anything that looks good. And a common word that we use to describe this kind of desire is materialism. Materialism, maybe you've used that word yourself. That a materialistic person, what, what do they want? Well, they just want a bunch of stuff. They just want whatever they see. You know, if they're at the mall, they see the dress or they see the cute shoes or they see the outfit or whatever, and they say, I want it. I got to have it. And they're willing to sin in order to get it. And one way that this could play out is in your desire to have whatever you see. Just whatever you see, that your instinct, your immediate reaction is coveting, is being envious, is I want that, I got to have that. Oh, I'm so discontent with what I have. I need that to be happy. I need that. Another way that this could play out is by... Maybe one of your friends has a nicer house. Maybe your friend has a nicer house, and so you wish you did too. You wish that you could have that house, and you wish that you could have that room to yourself. Maybe you share a room and wish that you could have your own room, and you just want it, even though you can't have it. Maybe it's that your friend has cuter shoes, has cuter clothes, and you wish that you could just have the cute clothes. You wish that your parents would spend the money, and so you sin. Maybe it's that your friend has a boyfriend. They have a guy who likes them, and you wish that you had that. You wish that you had that guy that liked you back too. And so you sin, and so you covet. Maybe it's that somebody that you know is prettier than you are, and you wish that you were prettier. You wish that you could wear that makeup. You wish that you could look that way. And so you sin, you covet. You say, I'm not content with the way God made me. You see it you want it, and you're willing to sin to get it. That's the progression of the desires of the eyes. And this is not how God calls Christians to live. This is not how God calls us to do it. We have to stop and think, do my desires please Christ? Do my desires bring honor to Christ? Or do they just make me look better? Do they just make me feel better? What is the heart of that desire? We got to commit to turning away from looking at worthless things. Looking at things that we wish that we could have, we have to stop and say, No, I'm going to do what God has called me to do. I'm going to find life and, and purpose in what God has called me to do instead. And in Psalm 119, verse 37, Psalm 119, 37, The psalmist writes, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The psalmist is saying, I I don't want to look at those things and sin. I don't want to look at those things and covet. I want to find life in you. I want to live for you, God. And we have to do the same thing with those desires, with those cravings that we have. And lastly, John talks about this last set of desires, and that is the pride of life. The pride of life is the last reason he gives us not to love the world. And this is the desire for anything that makes you look good, anything that promotes you, what makes you look better, what makes you look more attractive, what makes you look more popular or cool, anything that makes you look good. And one way this might play out is your tendency to one-up somebody. You're that person that always has to share the better story or the better thing that you got. If your friend's telling you that story about um, their trip to Hawaii, you say, well, I've been to Hawaii three times, and I've been to Maui, and I've been to Kauai, and I've been to Oahu. You just always have to one-up them. You always have to look better than the next person. That's your natural tendency is to, to brag. This is the girl that's friends with the rich kid at school, friends with the kid who has a lot of money so that hopefully you can get some, you know, cool hookups or something like that. Maybe you'll be able to go to that place. Maybe you'll be able to wear her clothes. Maybe you'll be able to partake in this cool, you know, event that they're just interested in looking better, just interested in promoting themselves. This is a girl who posts inappropriate photos so that she can get likes and followers. She's willing to wear whatever, willing to post whatever in order for people to look at her, people to follow her, people to admire her. This is a girl that's willing to dress however she wants to dress so that guys will like her, so that she'll get the attention. She's just willing to get the focus all the time back on herself. This is the pride of life. And lastly, this is the girl who likes to brag about herself. She just loves talking about the things that she did, the grade that she got, and not asking questions about the other person, not being interested at all in what good happened to their friend or good happened to their sibling. They just want to brag about themselves, make themselves look better. And Christians, we're not supposed to be concerned with making ourselves look so good, making ourselves look Amazing! Promoting ourselves—we're supposed to be interested in promoting Christ, making the gospel look good, making God look good. We want people's attention to get off of ourselves and onto God, onto the gospel. That's what they want to boast in. That's what they want to promote. In they want to promote Christ. And in 1 Corinthians, verse uh, chapter four, verse seven, First Corinthians four, verse seven, when Paul's talking about being puffed up in the ministry. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? And so these people in the church, they were boasting about these things that they were clearly given by God. And everything that we have, James 1.17 says, is a gift from God. It's from him anyway. And so who are we to boast? Who are we to say, look at what I got. Look at this amazing talent of mine. It's, it's not us. It's God who gave that to us in the first place. So we can't be puffed up. We can't be boasting in ourselves. And in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, he says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts... Boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So he's saying, Who are we? We can't boast in ourselves, our riches, our things, our stuff. He's saying, you want to boast about something good? Boast about knowing God. How amazing is it that us as sinful people, we can have a relationship with God. We can be called daughters of God, sons of God. That's an amazing miracle that only God provided, that he loved us first in order that we could have a relationship with him. That's worth boasting about. That's worth talking about, bragging about God instead of ourselves. And so ask yourself the question, what do you brag about? What are the things that you tend to boast about? Is it you? Is it your stuff? Is it the grade that you got? Is it your clothes? What what is it? Identify those things. What is it that I spend time bragging about, boasting about? Are you concerned with looking good uh, above anything else, that you just want to look good, you want to look pretty, you want to be liked? What are your main concerns? And if I asked you, what do you want more than anything else? If you could just have one thing, what would it be? What would you say? Would your desires have anything to do with God? Anything to do with honoring Christ? Or would it have to do with looking good? Would it have to do with looking better, promoting yourself? And so ask yourself the question. John wants us to ask the question. God's word wants us to ask the question. What do you love? What do you love? What do you want more than anything? What are your desires? Ultimately, we have to make sure that it's not the world, that it's not the world that we love. It's not the world that we desire more than anything, but it's God who we desire. It's God who we want. And lastly, John gives us one last reason of why we should not love the world, and that comes from verse 17. So you can go ahead and look at verse 17 in our text again. It says, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John is saying that there is a built-in problem with the world. There's a problem with the world that's just its how it is, and that's that the world is passing away. The world isn't going to last forever, and neither will you. You and I will not last forever. At one point, you and I are going to die. At one point, it's going to happen. This place is temporary. Our lives are temporary. And so we want to focus on the things that will matter. We want to focus on the things that will matter 100 years from now. What is it going to be? So for point number three, write it down this way. We have to start to, to desire things that last forever. Start to desire things that last forever. Because this world is going to end Your life is going to end. One day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he's either going to say, depart from me, I never knew you, or well done, good and faithful servant. That's what really matters in the end. What matters is not how popular you were, how liked you were, how many followers you had, what you got out of this life, where you got to go in this life. Those things don't really matter 100 years from now. But what matters is the things that will last forever, doing what God wants us to do. And it's interesting how God, how John words it in verse 17, how he says that whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's funny because when I read this text at first, I automatically thought it, it was talking about how God lasts forever, how God is going to you know, be eternal, how God is everlasting, but, and, and obviously that's true. We know that God is eternal. We know that he is everlasting. But this promise is actually for the Christian. The promise is that Christians are going to last forever. The people who do what God has called them to do, they're going to have everlasting life. They're going to abide with God forever. So every time that you say no to sin, that you say no to doing that desire of the flesh, that desire of the eye, that taking in to the pride of life, it's it's like God is saying, this will matter. This will last forever. When you say no to sin and say yes to doing the right thing, God's going to reward you for that. He doesn't overlook what we do. He sees it, and he's going to reward us in his grace. It's such a grace of his. Every time that you choose to honor God instead of yourself, the opportunity that you could have boasted in yourself, you could have promoted yourself, but you chose to say, no, I'm going to boast in God. I'm going to make God look better. I'm going to ask that person the question instead of hoarding the attention for myself, instead of bragging about who I am. Every time you do that, every sacrifice that you make to do the right thing, to be at church, to read your Bible, to pray, God sees that. And those are the things that are going to matter a hundred years from now. What you do in this life for Christ Everything, that will matter in the end because God knows it and he's going to reward us for it. And the promise is that he's going to bring Christians into his home safely. That one day, we as Christians are going to be in the kingdom of God. He's going to call all the saints, all the people who have been saved to be in heaven together, to worship him in in eternity, to glorify him for the rest of our days, to sing praise for all the good things that he's done in the kingdom. Do you want to be in that kingdom? Do you want to do the things that will matter for the kingdom? Do you even have an interest in going to heaven one day? Do you have an interest in doing what matters a hundred years from now? Because there will be no sin, there will be no death, no pain, no temptation, no more suffering. All of our sins once you've become a Christian, have been forgiven in Christ. And we can bank on the promises of Scripture that we will be with Christ the Lord forever and ever. And nothing matters more than that. And so this text, this section of Scripture, is really a push to the Christians. If you're a Christian in this room, this text is saying, don't be comfortable with this world. Don't be comfortable with this life. Doing whatever you want to do, living however you want to live, we gotta live for the life to come. We gotta do things that matter 100 years from now. It's worth it. It's worth the fight. It's worth the battle that it is to live for God because He's going to reward us for how we've lived. And this life really is going to pass away, it's not going to last forever. The Bible says that we're sojourners. We're just passing through this life. It's so short. And next thing you know, eternity is ahead. So we want to care for eternity. We want to do what Christ has called us to do, to live for the kingdom of God. And this text is also talking to the non-Christians. If you are a non-Christian in this room, if you are a person who has not submitted to Christ, who has not repented of your sins, this verse is saying, stop. It's time to stop running from God. It's time to stop putting off that conversation you know you need to have with God, that business that you know you need to do with God. If your sins have not been forgiven, you have not asked Christ to forgive you of your sins, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? This life is going to pass away, like the text says. And we want to do what Christ has called us to do. We don't know when our days are going to end. We don't know when we're going to take our last breath. It could be tonight. And so we have to have our sins forgiven. We have to ask God to forgive us, to live for him instead of for ourselves. Because that will matter. That will matter 100 years from now. And so tonight's the night because... In the end, you either will pay for your sins or Christ will pay for those sins. And Christ has the perfect resume that he's offering to trade for yours. He's offering to say, I will take your debt. I will take your sin and forgive it. He's got the perfect resume. And when we become Christians, we automatically are given his righteousness so that we can stand before God as blameless, as righteous, as forgiven in Christ. It's a miracle. And it's something we need to make sure that we do. If you ladies have not done that, I plead with you. Please talk to your leader. Please talk to some godly person in your life and make it happen. Don't neglect your salvation because you're not guaranteed forever. And I know plenty of people that have chosen the path of the world, that have chosen to love the world and the things of this world. And my heart aches for them because they're broken. They are so disappointed. They're depressed. They're constantly unsatisfied because this life doesn't satisfy. They want the next thing. They chase after the next thing. And it's the same old thing every single time. They're not happy because they're living for this life. They're living for this world. They're not living for the life to come. And that's where our purpose is. That's the point of who who we are, why we were made, is to have a relationship with God, to have a right relationship with God, to have our sins forgiven. And it's a promise that you can bank on. Trusting in Christ is worth it. Trusting in him for salvation, not loving the world and the things in this world, it's a fight. It's a battle. It's hard. Don't get me wrong. It's tempting. It's tempting to love the world, but loving God is so worth it. He's the only one that can satisfy you. He's the only one who can fill you. He's the only one who can give you life, give you forgiveness of sins. There's no other name that we can be saved except through Jesus Christ. And as the text promises us, the one who does the will of God abides forever. They will be with God forever in the most perfect place, in the in heaven, in the kingdom with all of the saints. And that is what matters. You can rest assured in that promise tonight. And so we're going to go ahead and dive into our small group questions. You have three on the back of your worksheet you'll dive into. So let's go ahead and pray and ask that God would give us a good small group time. Dear God, I just thank you for your word for... Its commandments, what it says, and how it teaches us to not love the world and the things of this world, but to love you instead. God, we know that the world is tempting. We know that um, it looks good. Its promises look awesome, but we also know that those things are fleeting, that those things won't matter, that it's deceiving. God, and Zoe, pray for the girls in the room tonight who are wrestling, who know that they want to love the world and love God, and leave it at that. I pray that you would please help them to see they can't do both. They have to surrender. They have to love you. They have to stop running away from doing business with you. I just pray that they would tonight make that happen, that they would ask for your forgiveness, Lord, and that you would grant your forgiveness, that you would save them from their sins, Lord. And I pray for the Christians in the room tonight, God, that you would please spur them on, please encourage them to not love the world, to not be comfortable with this life, that instead they would be willing to say no to their sin, say no to the desires of the flesh, no to the desires of the eyes, that you would help them to see how you are worth it and how doing what's righteous is worth it. God, we just thank you so much for your word and how it gives us clear instructions for how we ought to live. We thank you that your spirit will help us in our weaknesses, help us to do what is right and honoring in your sight, God. And so I just pray that you would bless our time together, bless our discussions. Please help us to think about these things and not just hear them, but do them, that we would apply these truths to our lives tonight. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You guys are dismissed.